0: My fault. So we're going to be in the middle part of Romans 7 today. So if you were hit, if you're with us, um, last week we had a prayer service. Uh, I hate I missed it. I wasn't feeling well. But uh, on our fifth Sundays, we try to really focus in on making the Lord's house a, a house of prayer. And, um, and so if you were here last week, I know that you got much out of that as the Lord was glorified. But two weeks ago, going back into Romans 7, we looked at uh, the first six verses and th- those verses, if it, and you can probably read a, a subheading or just glance over them real quick if you were not here a couple of weeks ago, but those, those first six verses um, talk, talk about the fact that uh, Paul's teaching there about our freedom from the law um, and that we uh, no longer because of Christ's fulfillment on the cross, paying the demands and the penalty of our sin on the cross, that we're no longer uh, bound by the law, yet we talked about how that does not mean that we have a freedom or a license to just go sin and do whatever we want. So our, our freedom from the law is, is rather a freedom to serve God and to serve others. So it's not just a freedom to live selfishly and, and sinfully. And so we've kind of hammered home this idea uh, over the really last two or three weeks that as Christians we should obey the law not to gain acceptance by God, but because we already have acceptance, very important that we understand that premise as we get into the word this morning. That we should live in such a way and obey the law, not to gain his acceptance, but because we already have it. And so, in other words, if you if you if you put that in terms of our motivation, it is we are motivated by love and not fear. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about the difference uh, between the, the example with dogs, with grace dogs and law dogs, and how they. They look differently. If you were here, you probably remember that. And so we want to be um, motivated by, by love and not fear. And so as we come to verse 7 in our, in our uh, text today, Paul is, is kind of picking up there, and he's going to do what Paul typically does. We've seen this several times in the first six, six and a half chapters of Romans. And he begins a section of Scripture with a kind of a series or a couple of rhetorical questions. So he's asking the questions that he's going to either, they don't need an answer, or he's going to provide the answer himself. So that's where I want to start. We're going to just focus in on verses uh, 7 through 13, and then next week we are going to hope to finish off uh, the rest of chapter 7. So if you want to follow along with me, you can follow along in your Bible or up on the screen. So Romans 7, starting in verse 7, what then shall we say that the law is sin by no means? and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me, through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Paul responds to the the natural rebuttal of the things that he says in verses 1 through 6 about being freed from the law by stating implicitly that not only is the law not sinful, but also that the law has purpose. And that's the first of the two things we're going to look at in this text this morning. We're going to look at two major themes. Number one, the purpose of the law, and number two, the deception of sin. And these two things are kind of interwoven in and out of this scripture, actually throughout this chapter, but specifically this text today. So very first thing he's saying is we're going to look at the purpose of the law, that the law has purpose, and it's, it's, not, only, it's not sinful, it's not wrong. Yes, you've been freed from it, but the law has a major purpose. And that's where we're going to start in verse 7. If you go back there and you look at what he says in verse 7, kind of halfway through the verse, it says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. You may remember uh, back, uh, I guess it was been a couple of months ago, in Romans chapter 3 when we were covering that, Paul said the same thing in a slightly different way. Look what he says in Romans 3.20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So what he's saying here is the only possible way that we even know what sin looks like is because of the standards set forth in the law. The law often, in in many commentaries, study Bibles, other pastors, has been accurately, I think, described as a mirror. Give you an example of what this would look like. If, if I were to go look into a mirror after I had sat down and had a huge uh, plate of buffalo wings, which is something I routinely love to do, one of my favorite foods. So I sit down, I, I have lunch or have dinner, or whatever, and I, I have this huge plate of buffalo wings. You know, you're eating with your fingers whether you like the bone in or the bone out, you're just going at it, right? Well, what usually happens is the sauce, right, kind of goes everywhere. And I don't really care. I mean, as long as it doesn't get on anybody else, it's kind of usually the shirt's ruined, my face is ruined, everything's kind of, that's just the way it goes. But so I, I would obviously have some, some sauce on my face. But at that point, I would have a problem, and that problem would be my, my face being covered in buffalo sauce. So what could I do to, to solve my problem, right? So if I went into, and I went to the bathroom at the restaurant or wherever I was, and I went and I found a mirror and I stared into the mirror, the mirror would reveal to me my problem. Like, oh, boy, that, first of all, you're ugly, and second of all, you've got buffalo sauce all over that ugly face. And so then I'm like, okay, so there's, there's my problem. So by staring at the mirror, then my, my problem is exposed, okay? But let's say I want to fix that problem. I want to I clean up the buffalo sauce. And I decided to keep staring into the mirror. I wanted to keep staring into the mirror for four or five seconds and see if that fixed my problem. Is that going to fix my problem? No, right? Face is still going to be ugly, and the sauce is still going to be everywhere. So the, if, if, but my, but my point is this, is if I want to help clean my face, it's not going to start, it's not going to end with the mirror, it's going to start with the mirror. The mirror is going to expose it. And that's what, if you think about the law the mirror can only expose the problem, but it has no power to solve the problem. So if you think about it in terms of this this analogy, the, the mirror cannot remove the sauce from my face any more than the law can remove sin from my life. So understand that, that the law exposes the sin in our life, but it can't remove it. So I can sit there and I can memorize the law, I can I can know it back to front, I can just know every single letter, and just know it like the back of my hand, but it does not solve the sin problem in my life. I'm still just staring in the mirror, and I see I'm exposed to my sin. You see what I'm saying? So my face is still covered with buffalo sauce. So it exposes sin. So if you think about that for just a minute, that is what Paul is saying. That is the purpose of the law. It is to expose and to point out sin that is so deeply rooted in our lives. The purpose of the law has nothing to do with how to remove sin or how to deal with sin in our lives. That's a a different thing altogether. Its main purpose is simply to act as a mirror for your spiritual life, for the things that are unseen. And its purpose is crucial, though, because it clearly demonstrates our need for a solution. When I look into that mirror and I see a face covered in buffalo sauce, I realize that I need something to come help clean me up. It's, I love the way John MacArthur put it. He said that a, a person who does not see himself as a lost and helpless sinner will see no need for a savior. A lot of times with buffalo sauce, you don't even know it's on your face, right? It's not heavy. It might even smell good. Like, oh, I'm, I feel pretty good right now. You can't, can't see it, right? And a lot of times people that look at themselves spiritually like that, they think, man, my life's, my life's pretty good. It smells good. It looks good. It feels good. But when you look into a mirror, you realize suddenly that, wow, my face is kind of messed up here. And when you look into the mirror of the law, you realize that my life is kind of messed up. It's full of sin, and it exposes that sin. It's interesting here, if you go into the second uh, part of verse 7, Paul lays out the purpose of the law. We talked about exposure of sin and then he follows up with an illustration about coveting. If you look at that second part of verse 7, he says, For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you should not covet. And this is interesting. Why, would he, why in the world would he use covet? Why would not he use murder? For I would not have known what it is to murder if the law had not said you shall not murder. Because the law says that, right? Or stealing. Or committing adultery. What, why, why? Why did he choose coveting? You don't see murder. You don't see stealing. You don't see adultery. Instead, Paul chose to use coveting. And that is something divinely done by the Holy Spirit. Because if you look at the Ten Commandments, most of you know them or you relatively know them. Thou shalt not covet is one of the Ten Commandments that's very different than the others. Because it focuses on the attitude of the heart not necessarily an action of the body. It's very, very different. And coveting, though, if you think about coveting, what it is, is it, at the, at the core root of it, it is what leads to almost every other sin. And yet, it's not easily recognized in our own lives. It's a sin we often overlook without even meaning to do so. And so what Paul is doing here by using coveting instead of murder, or stealing, adultery, whatever it might be, he's saying here, that the law exposes sin of an inward nature, yes, and also an outward nature. So the inward nature is this coveting. We all know that the law exposes the outward action. Thou shalt not murder. You kill someone, that's against the law. We understand that. That's an outward action. We can see it has consequences. But what he's talking about is that of an inward nature, that you cannot necessarily see it, the things that are not seen. And I would tell you that this also lets us know That God is concerned as much with your attitudes as he is with your actions. And I would be willing to say he might be even more concerned with your attitudes than he is with your actions. If you don't believe me, take some time this afternoon, flip in your Bibles to Matthew 5, read the Sermon on the Mount. And everything Jesus talks about is the heart, the attitude of the heart. He mentions all these actions of sin and he says, but I say to you, and he fills in with an attitude, not an action. Jesus, God is concerned with our attitude as much as he is with our actions. So I think that's the prime reason we see of all the commandments, of all the sin, that Paul would say, I would not have known what coveting is if the law had not exposed me to it. But then you keep going, next, the next two verses, verses 8 and 9, That's what he says. He said, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. What exactly is Paul talking about here? He says, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, Produce more sin, basically, right? I mean, that's an odd statement. That sin would seize opportunity through the law to produce more sin. This is kind of like one of those like, weird things that doesn't make sense, but that's exactly what he's saying if you read that. So how is that possible? Let me give you a couple examples of what, what Paul's talking about here to let you understand what he's trying to say. I want you to think about young children that you know, or for that matter, any age of children. A lot of you have children that still live in your home, uh, or you, you raise children, you may have some right now with you, but I want you to think about any time uh, when you've seen uh, an adult, or specifically parents of, uh, of a child, go to a child and specifically tell them not to do something. So in other words, you give them, uh, my daughter Meryl just turned seven, she's got a lot of art stuff for her birthday, and so she's got like all this art stuff, and say, so, hey, You know, you use that for your paper. You use that for your uh, canvases, whatever. But do not draw on the walls. Guess what's going on in my house, right? Um, She goes. She's she's done pretty good here lately. We have some little sayings across some of our cabinets that are in permanent marker. But anyway, that's a a whole different story. But but she but that's what happens. So you don't draw on the walls. What do they do? They draw on the walls. Uh, We we go out. uh, We just buy new shoes. It's been raining. Don't jump in the mud puddle. I don't want you to ruin your new shoes. What happens? I'm going to find the center of that mud puddle with my bright new white shoes. You know, don't, don't, don't touch the paint that we put in the kitchen until it dries. What do they do? They walk up and, oh, it's not going to matter. Like, what does that do? You want to see what I'm talking about here, and, and, is, and it's, it's so easily seen in, in kids, is that we see the sin nature in its purest form. See, we are born with a sin nature. I never had to train my kids how to sin. You never had to train your kids. I was never trained how to sin. I knew how to do it from the moment I took my first breath. We were born with a sin nature. That is our default system. And one of the easiest ways to see that is to take the nicest and the most loving and kind and sweet kids and give them specific rules and say, don't follow them and watch what they do. You've probably seen some of these hidden camera things. They'll put kids in a room Give them instructions and have a little hidden camera, and you watch them, and it's just crazy. I mean, you see sin nature just like everywhere. Say these kids are so sweet and innocent. Not really, they're not really. But let me just tell you, it's not just kids. Adults do the same thing all the time. It just looks a little bit, little bit differently. Let me give you an example. The speed limit's 55 miles an hour. Oh well, that means I probably can drive 64 without getting pulled over. I don't go 64 or 65. Sound familiar? Or, or your boss says, um, we don't, you don't need to leave. You don't need to clock out before 5 o'clock. Hey, you know what? This has been a long week. I've been, in, I've been in here overtime. I've done too much. I'm leaving the day at 4.30. I don't care what he says. It's only 30 minutes. It ain't that big of a deal. So I clock out at 4.30. Well, what about when it comes around March, April, and it's tax time, and we got the most ridiculous, crazy tax codes in the world, right? You can't understand them, crazy IRS stuff. And you know that you're sitting there, when you're filling out your taxes, like nobody follows all these rules. I know so-and-so and so-and-so, they've lied and they've lied and they've got this money back. And we kind of, eh, if we fudge this number here and fudge that number there, then that means we'll get a big number back here. And all of a sudden, we don't look any different than the kids, right? It's the same thing as walking up and touching the wet paint. We want to see what happens. It's, it's sin nature. You see where I'm going? It's kids and it's adults. It's all of us. When we are given rules or laws, our natural instinct, because of our sin nature, is to rebel. Rebel against those rules almost immediately. This is what Paul means when he says that sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced more sin. So God gives us his law, and our first and most natural instinct is to do the exact opposite of what he's given us to do. Which, guess what that does? Creates more and more and more sin. Paul says it this way. We haven't covered this part yet. We will in a couple of weeks. In Romans 8, he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Notice this last part. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. This is why, as a Christian, living and walking by the Spirit of God is so crucial. Because as Paul is saying here, we literally cannot submit to God's law on our own. What that verse says is we are hostile to God. We make God our enemy. And, and, and Paul continues to expound upon this idea in these next verses here, back in our text in Romans 7. If you go look at verse 10, look what he says. He says that the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. What's he talking about? As a Pharisee, Paul had previously believed that if I look at the mirror long enough and if I follow the law long enough and I do it exactly like it says and I just stare, 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 memorize the law, do the law, then that will bring life. And Paul says instead, though, it produced in him a very, very strong self-reliance which always leads to spiritual death. Self-reliance leads to self-righteousness, and that is the mother of all sin. And it always leads to more death. The moment you think that you got it all together, the moment you think that I don't need God, I don't need someone else, I am self-reliant, I am an, a, a man-made, I am, I've, a, I've done these things myself, I've built my house, I've provided my living, I've raised my kids, whatever it might be, that produces in you self-righteousness, which I believe is the one of the massive roots in our hearts of all sin and that's what Paul said he goes the very commandment that I thought promised me life it proved to be death because it made self reliant it made himself righteous this is the this is one reason why we go to so many churches today in our culture and we see so many dead churches how many of you can say you don't have to raise your hand because I know it'll be everybody that you have been a part of or went to and visited a church that was just the Holy Spirit wasn't there It was dead. It was like walking in and there was no spirit of God there. There was no teaching of the word. There was no singing and proclaiming of God's goodness. And you're like, this feels like a social club. This doesn't feel like a place where the Savior is being lifted up. And the reason that's going on, I love what what Warren Wearsby said about it. He said there's there's few things in our culture are more dead than an orthodox church that is proud of its high standards. And tries to live up to them in its own energy. See, the, the people in those churches at some point along the way, they've placed their trust in themselves. They've become self-reliant. They're not relying on God to maintain these high standards. And if you go back to what I just read earlier, what Paul says is you can't maintain these standards. You will fail. So it's not a matter if, of, of if, if you fail, but when you fail then you're going to be, what, frustrated, and you're going to be miserable. And so when you walk into their doors, you feel that. You're like, oh, my gosh. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many churches I've walked into, and I haven't spoken to the pastor. I haven't spoken to a member. I've just gone and sat down, and I'm like, whoa, something's not right here. And you can feel that frustration and that misery because you've got people that have had these high standards. And if you've got to live up to these high standards, and we're not living up to those high standards, and therefore we're frustrated and we're miserable, They have taken something intended for good, the law, and they've transformed it into something bad that it was never intended to be, therefore resulting in not only their own spiritual lives being in misery, but quite honestly the the life of many, many churches. I I like the example John Piper uses when he talks about the law, and this is a a little gruesome, so bear with me, but I think it's accurate. John Piper says, picture the law as a surgeon's scalpel. It is meant for life and healing, right? That's what a surgeon is supposed to do. And here comes sin and takes the scalpel out of God's commandments and slashes people's throats with it. The commandment, holy, just, good was able to be life to me and it became death for me because sin took the scalpel out of the surgeon's hand and with it slashed my throat and killed me. That is not What a scalpel is for. See, we've got to understand that the problem is not the law. The problem isn't the scalpel, right? The scalpel in the right hands is used meticulously to bring life, to cut away scar tissue, to cut away the infection, and to bring life. But when it's in the wrong hands and used in the wrong way, then it becomes death. That's what Paul's saying. What I thought was meant for life actually was death. We must understand that the problem is not the law. The problem is man and man's sin nature. Paul continues in verse 11. He says kind of the same thing again. He says, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Here's the second theme that I told you we would see. We see the the purpose of the law, and number two, we see the deception of sin. Right here in this this verse, Paul is personifying sin as a tempter and a deceiver, which, by the way, is the way Satan has utilized sin going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And Satan's plan is the same as it was back in the Garden of Eden. It's the same plan he has right now. If he can convince you to believe that you can keep God's law, that you can keep all of those things on your own, And guess what he's convinced you? That God's no longer needed in your life. You're good. You can take care of yourself. You don't need God because you can handle things on your own. This is the same lie Satan has been telling us throughout the history of mankind. Uh, John MacArthur put it like this. Sin's subtle disaster is deceit. I couldn't agree more. Sin's subtle disaster is deceit. And it is subtle, because you don't realize you're being deceived. Because ultimately, when you're deceived, you're no longer walking by the Spirit. You're no longer capable of making accurate moral decisions. And eventually, sin has entangled you in every way possible. And suddenly, we have a subtle disaster. And it's because we've been deceived. But, in this passage, Paul is quick to bring the focus right back to the law in verse 12. Look what he says in verse 12. So the law, though, is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Here again, Paul is contrasting these two themes, law and sin. And he's saying, please, understand me that, yes, sin brings deception and death. Yes, that's true. But the law remains holy and righteous and good. So just because sin sees the opportunity given to it by the law to produce more sin... That does not make the law any less holy or any less righteous. And then as we've seen Paul do numerous times in the book of Romans and and other writings of his in the New Testament, in verse 13, the last verse we're going to look at this morning, Paul answers his own questions, a question that he knew that people would definitely be asking him in response to his teaching. And look what he says here in this last verse. He said, Did that which is good then bring death to me by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. See, in no way is Paul claiming that the law brought death to him, but it was sin that brought death and that was responsible for producing death through the law. And what was the purpose of all of that? What was the purpose of this big picture? I want you to see about halfway down the screen. In order that sin might be shown to be sin. There's your purpose. When you see something in the Bible that says, in order that, better pay attention because it's telling you why is it there? Why is this process going on? In order that sin might be shown to be sin. I think this might be the most important phrase in this entire section of Scripture. Don't miss this. I believe far too often, far, far, far too often, we don't understand the weight and the gravity of our sin. And we, 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 we rationalize sin to the point that we even change the wording. Whether we say it out loud or we say it in our mind or we think it, we, we rationalize sin in our own lives so much that we change the wording. So, so sin now has, for, for many of us, has become, well, that's just a mistake that I made. I didn't, I didn't mean to do that, or I, yes, I, I did that, but I didn't mean to cause any harm, or that's just one of my weaknesses that I struggle with, and all we're doing is rationalizing our sin away, and let me just tell you, when you do that, number one, you're not only lying to yourself and to God, but what you're ultimately doing is you're claiming with your words, your actions, your thoughts, that ultimately You do not need Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross for you. It's like you're looking at Jesus on the cross as he's dying for you. And you say, thank you, Jesus, but no thank you. I got this. Because that over there that you thought was sin, that was just my mistake. My bad. No big deal. And that over there that I really hurt someone's feelings, that wasn't my intention. Things just kind of got mixed up. I, I don't know. Jesus, I'm good. Thanks for the sacrifice, but no thanks. We need to understand the gravity, and the weight of sin. I think we often look at sin through the lens of a broken mirror. You ever looked at a mirror that's been broken? I talked about mirrors earlier, but have you ever had one that's broken, and you look at it, and it's, it's really crazy looking, you're seeing all kind of weird angles, you're seeing parts of your face, you're, you know, it's all, it's all distorted. And I think that's the way that the enemy deceives us into looking at our sin, so that when we look at it, we don't see the full picture. We just see, eh, it's kind of bad over here, but right here it's not so bad, and over here, it doesn't look too bad, and it's, it's a deception. It's total fool's gold. So you guys know me, and I think a lot when I read Scripture, when I read anything, I think a lot in, in sports analogies and in illustrations. And when I think about the way that I view sin, I think about the way we view sin, this is the way I think about it. I think of a basketball team starting a game against an opponent and y'all have all seen this, if you've watched any basketball game in your entire life, middle school, high school, college, NBA game, whatever, that the team starts out, and they start out on fire, right? They start out, they they make three or four three-point shots right out out of the gate, right? They go up 10, 11, 12, whatever it is, to nothing. And, you know, when I used to play basketball, and then I've coached a lot of basketball since then, it would be, it's one of the best feelings in the world, honestly, to, to see those first three or four shots from outside drop through the net. I mean, you look up at the scoreboard, scoreboard's lighting up, your team's taking the lead, and you feel like, man, I got no reason to worry at all. It's going to be an easy game. Our team is going to crush this opponent. I'm telling you, this is going to be fun tonight. But you know what having a distorted view of our sin and making a lot of three-pointers have in common is they're both liars and they both deceive you into a reality that is ultimately not real. You guys that that follow any kind of basketball, you know what usually happens when a team makes a bunch of three-point shots at one time in any given game. Well, immediately the short-term effect is they score a lot of points, and they go up on their opponent, and the scoreboard looks like a Christmas tree because they're lighting it up, and it all feels good and and fun, and we're going to win the game. But the other thing that will inevitably almost every single time on every single level of basketball almost always happen is that eventually those three-point shots that were making their mark start missing their mark. And the team will keep shooting them just like they had before when they were making all of them. And all of a sudden, one by one, those shots clang off the rim. And if you know anything about basketball, the longer your shot is, usually the longer the rebound. And so not only am I now missing my shot, but my rebound is going way out to start a fast break or an easy opportunity for the other team to go get a very easy score. And all of a sudden, I look up at the scoreboard, and now my team's not even winning the game. The lead will have dwindled down to nothing. The other team has surged ahead. And I'm thinking, what in the world has happened here? I thought this was going to be easy. I thought we were going to win this game easily. See, what happened is the team fell in love with fool's gold of the three-point shot. And that resulted in, you know what that did? And I've seen this time and time again in teams that I've, I've coached, both on, whether it be second and third graders or, or college students, college teams, that time and time again, when those three-pointers are dropping, you know what they forget to, to focus on? Their defense, their passing, their rebounding, their mental side, the how much time is left in the game, the, all those things. They, they forget about all that because I don't need any of that because my, three, my, my, my threes are dropping. Coach, we're winning. I don't need to worry about how I'm playing defense or how I'm passing or how I'm rebounding. And they've taken their, their focus off of where their focus needed to be. And that's exactly what the deception of sin does to us. It is greater than we can even imagine. It is the fool's gold that we have in our spiritual life. And so many, many times... In an instant, it seems like in a game, everything has changed. Where we thought we were winning and we thought we were going to easily cruise. And this might be the same thing in your spiritual life. You think you're winning. You've been reading your Bible. You've been doing things the right way and things feel good. And then all of a sudden, you wake up and you look up and you look at the scoreboard and you realize, wait a minute, something's gone wrong here. Something's gone way wrong. And the opponent is now winning the game. The shots aren't going in, the other team is scoring and you find yourself feeling like the game is slipping right through your fingers. And, and many times, ultimately, if you guys watch any basketball, you know the reality is, I don't know what the percentages are, but many, many times, that team that was once making all those shots end up losing not only that quarter or that half, they end up losing the game. They fell in love with the fool's gold, which eventually led to drastic consequences. So here's what I want to challenge you guys with today as we as we close our service in a time of communion is this. Let me challenge you not to fall in love with fool's gold. Specifically, spiritually, the fool's gold of the rationalization of your sin. So that you make it seem not as bad or not as evil or not as treacherous or not as heartbreaking to God as it really is. See that the purpose of the law, which Paul says is good and holy and righteous, is to drive us to Jesus who paid the penalty for our sin. And as I just mentioned, the deception of sin is far greater than the deception of a three-point shot. The deception of sin is greater than anything we can imagine. So we've got to constantly be pursuing Christ so that what Paul said at the end of verse 13 will be a reality for us on a daily basis. Go back to that phrase. In order that sin might be shown to be sin." And he says, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. If we never truly see our sin accurately, what Paul's saying there, then we're never going to see a true need for repentance and a Savior who we need so desperately. As we look at communion, I want to I focus for just a second on a slightly different passage of Scripture, but it's coming from the Apostle Paul, and it relates right back to this passage in Romans 7. And I'm going to set this up for us real quick, and then I'm going to ask the guys to come and pass out the bread and juice. But one of my favorite passages when it comes to celebrating the Lord's Supper together, which if you're new here at Connect Church, or if you haven't been in a while, we do it the first Sunday of every month. And one of my favorite passages is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. And it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And he's talking about, he's giving instruction for the Lord's Supper. And let me just read this to you. It's five or six verses. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup. After supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Then Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood. Of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This morning I've talked about we need to see our sin accurately, and we do. That's, I think, what Romans is pointing out to us. But on the other side of things, we need to see our Savior accurately. See, Jesus took the bread and he broke it, representing his body being broken. And he took a cup that represented his blood that would be spilled. And he gave these things to his disciples and instructed them to to take, to eat, and drink. And to do so with four very important words on our minds. In remembrance of me. See, that's the reason we do the Lord's Supper. That's the reason we celebrate the Lord's Supper is to intentionally take specific time for reflection and remembrance of all Jesus has done for us in going to the cross, dying for our sin and rising from death on the third day. And I really like, I think we need to take into account those those little add-on verses that Paul added on in in 1 Corinthians there because I believe this is completely inspired by the Holy Spirit I just read on verse 26, 27, and 28, he says for, and don't miss this, and this is not just for today, this is for every time you take communion, whether it's at this church or anywhere, he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the blood or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. Paul saying we are to proclaim the Lord's death and his sacrifice until he returns. So that means we never can talk about Jesus enough. We never can talk about the cross enough. And these are the things we're, we're to think about and talk about and share with others. But what Paul says in verse 27 should make you pause, at least mentally, for just a second. And what he says there in verse 27 is about taking the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner which first and foremost, in a worthy manner, means you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? You have put your faith and trust in him for all of eternity. But secondly, there's a second part here that Paul mentions, that you are willing to examine yourself, as Paul said in verse 28, before eating of the bread and drinking of the cup. So here's what I would challenge you guys who are here today. If you're willing to meet those two standards, you're a believer in the Lord Jesus and you're willing to spend some time reflecting and examining yourself, seeing your sin accurately, and seeing your Savior accurately, both, then I would definitely encourage you to take the bread and the juice as it comes by. However, let me caution you on two things. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, or maybe you are a believer, and there's some stuff going on in your life right now that you don't want to deal with sin-wise, and you're not willing, but between you and the Lord, not, has nothing to do with this church, has nothing to do with me, but you're not willing to examine yourself before a holy and righteous God this morning, if you're in either one of those two categories, let me just encourage you to when the, 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 the bread and the juice come, that you would not take it, that you would just pass it. That is completely fine, that is completely acceptable. Because what I read here is that you're going to be a lot better off To let that go by and not partake in an unworthy manner than if you were to be found guilty of taking so in a manner that is not worthy of the Lord. Keep in mind, uh, and and the guys that usually do our devotions, they always say this and they say it rightly. Taking communion has nothing to do with being a member of Connect Church. So if you're a member here, we're so thrilled. If you're not a member here, that does not matter at all in terms of the Lord's Supper. But it does matter that you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so for, for parents in the room that have kids that are in here, we we'll let you guys make the decision for them as it comes to uh, their decision, their walk with the Lord, and what, what you know to be true about them, whether they take the bread and the juice. Um, and so what we'll do is we'll have our guys come. They're going to pass out the elements. Uh, and like I said, you need to take a long and hard focus and thought about, am I willing to really be examined? That's That's what... Paul says, am I really willing to be examined in light of Romans so that sin might be looking as sin and that our Savior might be looking as glorious as He is? Are we willing to do that during this time? And if you're not, you're not. You can't force yourself to be there. So I would, I would just say just let it pass. No, no big deal. But if you are there, I would ask you to really spend some time in prayer and reflection and, and just maybe it's a time of thanksgiving, and a time of asking for forgiveness before you take those elements. And we'll give everybody time to do that, and then uh, our band's going to come up, and they're going to close our service. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask the guys to come, and we're going to celebrate and take uh, the Lord's Supper here together. Lord, I thank you for your word. Uh, I thank you that it is so rich and so true. I thank you that it all lines up that we can be in Romans and be preaching through Romans and yet take a little sidestep into 1 Corinthians and it matches up so perfectly. And Lord, I've, i just got one, one prayer that I would ask this morning is, is as we are celebrating and taking of communion this morning as we're talking about the, the bread that reflects your body that was beaten and broken. And the juice that represents the blood that spilled and poured out of your body. All for our sake. For you to be crushed. Who knew no sin for our sin. Lord, thank you. Thank you for that. But Lord, I pray as communion is is going out that we would be serious about this. This is not just, oh, it's first of the month. We always do this. Bread, juice. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I I pray that this would be a huge time of celebration in the believer's heart this morning, but I pray also, Lord, that it would be a huge time of examination, because that's what Paul said it should be. So we should celebrate, Lord, and we should also examine our heart, and Lord, I pray that that's what you would do through the conviction of your Holy Spirit and through your Word. And and Lord, I I just want to thank you for the sacrifice you made to give up your body, to to even come to earth as a baby. And then to be raised up and to have your life on earth cut short at 33 years old and to be put on a cross, broken and beaten, and have your blood spilled out, all because of my junk, all because of our sin and our selfishness and our deceit. Lord, I pray that we would see our sin as it is, as shameful and disgusting and heartbreaking to you as it really is. Lord, I pray we would stop rationalizing our sin. It's not just a mistake. It's not just, I, I forgot. It's not, I'm, I'll, I'll get it better next time. Lord, I pray that we would see the weight. We would feel the weight and the gravity of our sin. Lord, I pray that your spirit would continue to fill this place now as we both celebrate and as we examine our, ourselves, our hearts, and our minds. Thank you for your body that was crushed. And we thank you for your blood that was spilled. Because without that, we have nothing this morning. That is the reason we're here. We thank you and we praise you in your name. Amen.